The Two Mats is brought to you by the New European. If you like the contents of this podcast, The Two Mats, if you're a regular listener, you're going to love The New European. And I've got a very special subscription offer for you for just a pound a week or two pounds a week if you want the newspaper. And that's the price of a bottle of water, folks, a small bottle of water. You can get The New European delivered to your door every week and you'll be supporting great independent journalism and you'll be kicking back against the corrosive nationalism that helped bring Brexit to Britain's shores. You'll also get a £25 voucher to spend at The New European shop and you can get a great book we've just published on the Battle of Orgreave or you can get a t-shirt or you can get a mug or you can get a great bollocks to Brexit passport cover. So do the right thing please, support this podcast and also support The New European. Go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S and there's a link in the show notes. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, and guten Tag. This is Tanit Koch. I do a bit of German planning every week in the New European. I write on Germany and how Germans relate to Britain and the rest of Europe. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European podcast. My name is Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. If you enjoy what we do, there really is no better way to support us than to subscribe. To make that decision easier for you, we've got a fantastic offer for podcast listeners. New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription for just £1 a week, or you can purchase a year's subscription to the print and digital package for just £2 a week. You'll have unlimited digital access, and our award-winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year. To take advantage of this exclusive offer and join our growing community of avid readers, subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. That's theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. And coming up on today's podcast, after Michael Gove's remarkable performance on Breakfast TV, it's time to talk about drugs. Recreational cannabis is legal in 21 US states. It's legal too in Canada, but in Europe, it's only legal in Malta. Is all that about to change? As a new Doctor Who is announced, we'll be asking which politicians you'd like to see on the long-running time and space travel show. And we'll be putting more blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers and putrid pundits into the Hall of Shame. 
So there's a new Time Lord in Shooty Gatwa, and for some reason the appointment of a gay black man from Scotland via Rwanda seems to have upset some people. I don't think anything has given me more pleasure this week, by the way, than writing this headline. Critics saying boo-hoo to the new who don't have a clue. But which politicians would you like to see in Doctor Who and in what roles? Here's what listeners of this podcast said. Quite a few variants of this first one, but Pamela Roberts was among those who said Boris Johnson as the TARDIS because he's vastly empty inside. Stanners said Priti Patel as Davros. Fact. Gemma Baker said Nadine Dorries as the next Doctor. She sounds like she's had a few screwdrivers in her time, not many of them sonic. Nick Arms says Gove as the Master. Anthony Peters says Smooth Head, Robotic Delivery. It's Nadim Zahawi and Sajid Javid as the Daleks. Jeremy says Lord David Frost as an out-of-time Lord. David Glenham says, come on, it's got to be Eric Pickles as a Sontaran. Hannah Kay says, Dr. Liam Fox as Dr. Who the hell do you think you're kidding? Jerry Bainbridge says, Dominic Raab as a Cyberman, although the Cybermen are more expressive and warm-hearted. Rob Munro says, Daniel Hannon as the Brexit brain of Morpheus. John Carter of Mars said, Jacob Rees-Mogg as a weeping angel or when it comes to the commons, a sleeping angel. And Harry Brown says, Jacob Rees-Mogg, C-3PO, the Northern Ireland Protocol droid. Hang on, have I got the right sci-fi franchise here? No, but thank you for your efforts, Harry, and thank you so much to everyone else who uh, sent those in. Now, before Sooner Erdem join us, joins us, I'd like to remind you about another podcast from the New European. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women, and a young child, but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away, to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of The 27 is now available to stream or to download in the same new European feed where you found this episode. Now, anyone for legalising drugs? An emergency budget, um, which is what uh, uh, some people immediately thought that it did. Uh, It is an example of 
some commentators chasing their own tails uh, and trying to take a statement that is commonsensical, turning it into uh, a major capital letters, a big news story. Um, and in fact, when the Treasury quite rightly say, calm down. Well, possibly a bad advert for them there. But as the legalisation of cannabis takes hold in North America, does Europe risk being left behind? And will we ever be brave enough to take such a step in Britain? I'm joined by the new European Sooner Erdem, whose article on drug legalisation in Europe is in issue 291 of the New European on sale now. So welcome back to the podcast, Sooner. Um, recreational cannabis obviously now legal in 21 states of the USA. It's legal in uh, Canada. It's legal too in Malta. What else is happening around Europe, though? It, it, uh, there's a confused picture, isn't there? Um, yeah, there's a bit of a wave and lots of little bits happening. Actually, the first country to legalise was Uruguay in 2013, and then it was Canada and the US. Um, and in Malta, it's not quite as expected. There's sort of some legalisation, so you can grow and consume a small amount, but quite a lot of the framework that was supposed to happen hasn't happened. So there were supposed to be cannabis clubs where they, or societies where they could grow and trade and that hasn't happened. So it's, it's not as good as it seems. And I think there's a bit of worry among some countries about going too far ahead. Um, so there's a lot of experimentation in Switzerland the Netherlands, for instance. Um, Portugal is quite interesting because it's um, not legal, but um, they decriminalized all their drugs quite a long time ago and um, they're now doing a more health and safety approach to it which and they're on the way to legalization they're thinking about it Italy's going to have a referendum um, Luxembourg is sort of moving in that direction so there's a lot of experimentation and trials going on and um, Germany is um, that Germany's government has uh, promised to legalize it soon so that's yeah. one of the countries ahead so um that's that's the picture. There's a lot of it's quite way behind um, the states and Canada, but it seems poised for a, quite a big move. Yeah, which well, may not happen depending on how the, the politics goes. Yeah, we can talk more about Germany, particularly um, in, in a second. But I mean, we didn't plan it like this. But on the day this piece came out, Britain is lagging behind on, on these things as, as we tend to do. But I think probably a significant step forward for people who do want to see cannabis legalised in Britain, from via Sadiq Khan. What, 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 what happened with Sadiq Khan this week? Well, that's interesting. He's actually been meeting with, um, doing having some meetings in LA um, with the mayor of LA, Eric Garcetti, and um, he has set up a new group to look at um, whether it's a good idea to decriminalise cannabis in the UK. Um, he's got former Justice Secretary Charlie Falconer um, to chair it, and um, he's talking about, you know, we needed a grown up uh, conversation on this. At the moment, cannabis is a class C, class B drug here. Sorry, it was C and then it moved up back to B again. And so you can actually go to jail for five years for possession. And um, Khan's idea is that, you know, we've got to have an honest, open conversation because the laws aren't actually working. And we've got to look at health consequences and see if we can follow other countries. Um, that's caused... Um, Pretty Patel to hyperventilate and she said that the mayor of London is wasting his time because he has no powers to legalise drugs which is true um, but it's a sort of interesting start to a conversation that a lot of countries are having um, and are moving forward towards and he's not the only one he's also got you've also got um, quite interesting characters um, Crispin Blunt he's been he's quite yeah. a strong advocate for 
legalization of cannabis um he's in his surname isn't it really to be honest with you (laughs) quite quite and um he says you know the the uh drug laws are a mess here um and it you can only it's only by legalizing and regulating cannabis and supply and decriminalizing possession that you can actually stamp out street cannabis and destroy the criminal business model um You've also got David Lammy, who's been to, you know, went for a number of um, other MPs to uh, Canada a few years ago. And he he sort of come around to the idea that this is how you're going to make it safer for people by decriminalizing, um, leg- legislating against, so legalizing it and taxing it and regulating it. So there is quite a strong group of MPs in the background. You've got the Liberal Democrats who um, are in favor of legalization. And the Greens are even further along the line. I think they want to legalize a wider range of drugs. And there are some individuals. You've also got, you know, it's it's quite commonly used in the UK. Um, and so you've got there's a lot of public support for legalization as well. It's just that the politicians, um, for various reasons, don't think it's a good idea. They emphasize what's what's dangerous about it, which is of mm. course everybody emphasizes what's dangerous about it. Um, the idea of legalization isn't it's not a free-for-all. It's the idea that the war on drugs has been lost, yeah. that it costs a lot of money, a lot of policing hours, and a lot of young people are still exposed to drugs and they can get them in street corners. So it's dangerous to get them. The kind of drugs they have are more dangerous. And so they feel that as we've lost this war, maybe a better option is instead of prohibition is to actually regulate it. Um, and Chris from Blunt, for instance, says, you know, it's like, tobacco and alcohol which are not good things um, but that's no reason to make it illegal well it's better to try and regulate it and reduce it in that way so yeah. that's that's where the uk is so you know the idea is for um the cannabis entrepreneurs there's a growing number of them they see the uk as quite an interesting market um because there's uh, uh, there's a lot of cannabis growing here actually we didn't i didn't really realize this for medical cannabis um it's one of the leaders in the world in growing medical cannabis and um, there's, uh, it, they think that the, there is quite a momentum here. So they're looking at investing in the UK um, because they think it's, they said it's a sleeping giant. So you know, depending on what happens in Europe and um, what the public pressure is, it could be moving forward towards legalization, even if it doesn't get there for several years. Um, yeah, I mean, the taxation thing is interesting, isn't it? That's the great sort of unsaid thing by Sadiq Khan and, and David Lammy and, and Crispin Blunt, I guess, because, you know, nobody really wants to tout the, um, the, 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 the gov- their government as, a, as a, you know, a drug dealer, really, is going to make money from it. But, I mean, the, the, the argument, I think the people are increasingly deciding, aren't they? This In this piece that you've written, you're talking to this guy, Alistair Moore, who's uh, from a... a research fund Hanley Associates, a marijuana-focused research firm. Um, they've done research on legal attitudes to legalising cannabis all over Europe. What did, what did that research uh, discover? It finds, actually, that there's quite a lot of support. I mean, the European average um, for legalising cannabis was 55%, and, and that was also the figure in their survey for the UK, so 55% of people surveyed by them in the UK said they would support legalization. Um, most of these countries, even it sort of fluctuates, they're around you know, the 50s, low, you know, late, high 40s, low 50s, or goes up to 60% in some cases. And um, there's also, I think 30%, that's maybe more ominous for the people who don't want it legalized, said they would try it. 
So there is a lot of ground um, grassroots support. And I think that's what's happening in Europe. There's a lot of grassroots support and politicians are then having a look at it because, I mean, whether it's a vote winner or not, it's not seen as a vote loser um, yes. in Europe. It depends, I guess, on your voter base. I think, you know, Labour and Lib Dem and Green supporters are more supportive than Conservative supporters. But, you know, then you have Conservative promoters of legalisation. So it's it's not as contentious in, among the public as it is among politicians, I would say. No, I would I would agree with you. And, and it's it's strange, isn't it, that the Conservatives are supposed to be libertarians and, um, you know, not telling people what to do and how to run their lives. And yet they, you know, they really sort of dig in on this issue time and again. Um, you, you spoke about Ireland and, and Switzerland and, and, and movement there and, and across uh, across Europe. The Netherlands is really interesting. I mean, new European readers will, will know a piece by Ferry Biedemann not so long ago, um, that Amsterdam has sort of taken steps to close down tourists, stag, stag weekenders coming in and, and using coffee shops. There's a general sort of recognition there seems to be in, in the Netherlands that the way they've been doing things has been a you know, it's been a drain on their services. It's been an enabler of organised crime. What's what's their new plan in the, in the Netherlands to, to prevent those kind of things? Yeah, I mean, the Netherlands is interesting. As you say, you'd think without really you know doing much research, you think, oh, there's a coffee shop, so it must be legal. But actually it isn't. And then they rate, you know, they're tolerated. And of course, then the supply is always illicit. So it doesn't matter how much you decriminalise or tolerate it unless you're actually producing the cannabis yourself it's still going to be going to support organized crime and you're not going to have any control over the quality and by quality it doesn't mean like good it's sort of you know there's also they mix in glass or there's sort of um, you know nasties like pesticides in there so um it's netherlands is realizing basically that the model they've had is sort of pretty sleazy and it's got um it's promoted organized crime or helped it in a way so now they're having trials they're quite limited at the moment but they've had about 10 licenses have been issued to grow cannabis and supply cannabis to some of the coffee shops um interestingly amsterdam isn't part of the trial it decided to opt it out but um it's a trial to see how they can do it and i think um what alistair moore was saying who's he's actually got um he's helped a client get one of the licenses and he was saying the bar for its success is actually quite low so you know if it doesn't get any worse they will consider it a success and then they'll try and expand it so that more places can grow um, legal cannabis and the hope is then that that will eventually push out the illicit suppliers which would make it they hope safer um, and that's so that's what's happening in the Netherlands um, another interesting point is from the Hanley survey that um, the Netherlands is one of the less um, supportive countries of legalization. Um, we don't quite know that why that is, but probably because of the experience of coffee shops and also probably because it's quite a boring topic for them in the end because they've had that more. And I think the idea for campaigners is they want cannabis legalization to become a sort of boring bureaucratic debate rather than a quite alarmist one about, oh my God, are our children going to go on drugs now? Which isn't the idea. The idea is that it's, very firmly regulated around adult use. So the word in the States actually for this is adult use, um, legalizing adult use rather than recreational because it, it expands the whole concept. So it involves medical and other kinds of 
usage, um, but it also shows that it's strictly for adults. So the idea of legalizing, which is what the route that Netherlands is going down is get us get a sort of a legal supply, a quality supply, one that we can control um, and one and make sure it doesn't get to the children, but a real ring fence around child use. Um, so that's what the Netherlands is doing. There's um, there's a, another trial in Switzerland, which is a which um, is a wider trial in that a lot of the cantons that you can have as many as you like. They're all five thousand people trials um, for legalization. So um, yeah, there's lots of data being collected, lots of little things being done um, in these countries, which will give us more of an idea of how it works. But the aspiration is obviously to make it safer. And you mentioned the tax before, which is actually a big issue. Um, has been in a big issue in Canada and will be one of the mistakes that people here would hopefully learn from is that they tax it quite highly in Canada. Um, I suppose as an idea to sort of discourage it and also might as well make some money. <laughs> but what happened then was um, the, uh, the, they like to call them the illicit traders. I mean, they, I don't know, organized criminals or whatever you call them. The dealers have been able to then undercut the government and the, lo the legal sales. And also because they haven't widened the um, supply options so much, there aren't that many shops, it depends on where you are, it's a bit of a postcode lottery. It also makes it more difficult. So a lot of the people in Canada at the beginning anyway, stuck to their own dealers and at least had quite a lot of the, I think there's only 30% of the users only use legal routes. So a proper taxation level is really important there. And that's some of the things that they're also um, studying in in Germany and um, Switzerland, the Netherlands, all the countries are, are having a good look at this. Um, Germany obviously is described as the, the sort of the, the big fish in, yes. your, in your piece. Being German, they, they have ambitious and well-developed plans. Um, they, you know, they're, they're really scaling up and, and talking about becoming a, a, a huge sort of marijuana uh, cannabis producer and uh, and and then obviously legalization will come. But I mean, a, a big legal drug state at, at the heart of Europe, borderless Europe that, that that they're in, that we're no longer in. That is going to make uh, continued prohibition really difficult in the rest of the mainland. Surely, it it is. Um, it, it is, and it will be quite a challenge because I mean, the interesting thing is that um, cannabis use is actually international I mean legalization is illegal if you see what I mean you've yeah. got um the the UN as the UN convention in the 1960s which makes cannabis apart from for medicinal and scientific use it's it's illegal and, and all these countries have signed it including Canada including Uruguay including the states so um they're flouting the laws at the moment um, nobody's doing anything about it because it's uh, this is the way we need to is decided this is the way we need to move but you've got the schengen agreement as well which incorporates this so a lot of countries are trying are looking at flouting it but of course germany doesn't do things like that so um <laughs> they're um they're looking at the example of what bolivia did for instance they, bolivia moved at left the convention on you know, narcotics and uh then rejoined with a sort of caveat that they could use coca leaves for in traditional manner or for traditional use so I think um, I spoke to the head of Bloomwell, which is the biggest uh, cannabis grower in Germany currently for um, medicinal cannabis. And he said that they would, 
probably he expected that Germany would try and do something like that, move out of convention, find a find the right timing and then go back in with permission. Um, and then, of course, uh, the Schengen would have to adapt. Um, but of course, if it's different regulations everywhere, it will cause problems. So I would imagine then that Europe would try and find some kind of solution to that. But there are so many countries around that are actually going in that way. So it might not be as bad as you think. But I mean, the idea with Germany is that the government, um, as I said, the coalition had it in their agreement that they were going to legalize cannabis. Yeah. And um, the health minister has said that by the end of this year, they should have a, a draft law on that. And that will, how that turns out, will sort of define how um, it works. According to Bloomwell, Bloomwell, they feel they think there's going to be full legalization, um, and they hope that this is the case because they say unless it's comprehensive, unless you've got the growers, unless you've got the suppliers, unless you've got the health architecture around it, um, unless you can import good quality cannabis from countries that are better able to grow it, then you're always going to be stuck with the illegal suppliers and the tax and the regulations are also um, important to get all those levels right so there's a lot of work going on to do that um, because there's so many different ways of dealing with not dealing <laughs> dealing with treating drugs so you could decriminalize you could tolerate which is what happens in a lot of places you could legalize use you could legalize growing you could legalize some kind of social club where they could trade um, so all that's being discussed in Germany. Um, the feeling is that they could provide a template for other countries in the region. Yes. And that sort of goes, you know, what they're doing sort of goes to knock down some of the, the, the arguments that have always been used against this kind of thing that, you know, they're legalising one drug will cause a demand for others, that it, therefore it's not going to end the trade in illegal drugs and so you know, organised criminals will still get rich and minority users who get caught will still get disproportionately punished. Um, but, it, I mean, it, it sort of, it really goes to challenge the idea that, you know, the strength of modern cannabis is is going to create a, a sort of, you know, a zombie class of people that will put an extra strain on health and, and mental health and, um, and, that, and that people will you know, just use street dealers anyway because their stuff will be of a higher quality or a, or a, or a higher potency, I guess. Um, all of those ideas, I guess, have been tested out in places where cannabis is legal. What are the lessons from places like Portugal and, and places like Canada? What have been some of the, the missteps? Um, yes, I mean, all those ideas you mentioned, they all need to be addressed because obviously it is a mental health issue for some people, certainly for young people, um, and it can be can lead to other use. Um, so what they've I mean, in Canada, initially, um, it was a bit tricky. I think people, there were more people using and um, the illicit market wasn't being um, wasn't being reduced. But mm. slowly that has happened. I mean, even they've even been sort of regularizing some of the glower, the growers for the illicit market so they've just been growing it for more legal use now so slowly you know it hasn't turned all Canadians into a bunch of potheads I mean there has been some increased use but not um, as far as the data shows particularly dangerous or concerning um, so the taxation um, and the supply I, I mentioned before those are really important to make sure that legal cannabis is cheap enough to fight you know to compete with the illegal market and it is available. Um, then they have to make sure that there are strong rules around the kind of cannabis, the quality of cannabis, which again depends on how they regulate it. So then it wouldn't necessarily be strong. But you, there are ways to make it work. Um, 
And in Portugal, what's interesting, because Portugal, it is still illegal, but it's decriminal. I mean, cannabis is legal, it's illegal to sell, but it's decriminalized. So they don't punish people who use cannabis or all the other drugs, actually, because in Portugal, they um, because they had Solidar, the Salazar dictatorship, they missed the swinging 60s. So they missed all that opportunity to experiment. So when they sort of emerged into the capitalistic world where all these things were available, they um, they suddenly got hooked on drugs and there were a lot of problems with drug addiction, deaths, you know, um, drug related AIDS cases. Um, so they had a number of enterprising doctors that started to work on the health side of it. And eventually they decriminalized it. It was decriminalized in 2001. I mean, they've got loads of data on, on how to work that. So it made, they made it safer to consume. They gave a lot of advice to people. They um, tried to put them off or make sure they could consume it in a more healthy way. And first by, by looking at the health and safety aspect of it and the education aspect of it, they've managed to bring it down and they're not the biggest users in Europe of drugs. It's not created a big drug problem. So whether they legalize or not, to focus on that side rather than the criminality, rather than sending, you know, spending millions of, on policing and criminalizing young vulnerable people, that was, that was seen quite as a good example. So um, yeah, the health and safety is very important because what's, what people worry about here, they think, oh my God, my children are gonna get hooked on drugs. But if it's, if it's, if you go, if you can go and get drugs and you can only get it as an, as an adult, and when you get there, you get this long lecture about how to do it safely and actually you shouldn't really do it at all. That's seen as actually a more useful way to approach it than just leaving it to the street corners. I mean, you've got county lines here. I live in, you know, rural Buckinghamshire and there's a worries about drug dealers going around to the schools and trying to recruit people. So, I mean, if it stops that, <laughs> I think that's quite a, quite an important thing but yes it is a problem in terms of um mental health and you know addiction um but that's got a that criminalizing it hasn't solved that so um and you know some people just like some people get become alcoholic some people like to become addicted to drugs others aren't so there are different levels which i think legalization will help people to study and understand and there is quite a lot of data coming from these other countries which i think you know british parliamentarians would be would do well to study and see what the lessons are from there. Um, I wanted to end uh, with we had a we had a, a very big response to, to this from um, from listeners um, on social media. You know, I, I must say that the that the the vast majority of, of people who responded are, are very much in favour of this uh, for for all sorts of reasons that we've we've discussed there. Um, a couple of people, you know, I mean, I think these are interesting points. Patrick Casey sort of said, you know, are we really going to... Majority of European users use tobacco in their mix. Are we going to really be encouraging a risking a, a healthy lifestyle? Uh, Chris Foden in favour again, but several points, the mental health point. Uh, he mentions the point that the criminals are going to grow uh, better quality, cheaper weed that will be sold, taxed in government-approved licensed shops, undercutting the legal stuff, uh, and the only way to head them off at the past then is to reduce quality uh, so you're able to sell at a lower 
uh, level, which just is a, a kind of a race for the bottom and, and sort of self-defeating. But he also, Chris also says, well, weed is de facto legal anyway at the moment. And it's true, isn't it? If you walk through any park or outdoor event or, you know, I spend a lot of time in Nottingham, I spend a lot of time in Norwich. If you walk down the street in either of those places, you can smell it. I visit London, uh, central London quite a lot. And it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you can smell it all the time there. So, um, so, so what's, what's the point, I guess, what are the answers to some of those, uh, to some of those points? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've I've even smelt it in the Waitrose car park, so if it reaches there. Um, I mean, the point that the campaigners would make is that, yes, that's, that is the point, that it's almost de facto legal, but it isn't. So you could have a young, you know, a young person who can get it easily, it's tolerated, and then suddenly get a criminal record for doing something that everyone else does. So to make criminals out of people who are doing what everyone does anyway seems to be counterproductive. In terms of you know, the better quality, that what, what that happened in Canada, originally, the criminals still managed to sell the drugs. But as time went on, they were pushed out of the market, or they're being pushed out of the market slowly. So if you have a comprehensive system, where um, there are a lot of legal producers, and the tax level is right, and the market is big, so it can regulate the price, that would go some way towards at least um, making it more attractive to get the legal stuff. And, um, so, you know, it's not, nothing's without problems. There aren't a perfect, there isn't a perfect solution. But the idea that, yeah, you shouldn't decriminalise young people or users. You should uh, try and educate them. You should try and produce something that's safer, regulate it so it's um, safer, available and, uh, and a good quality. Hmm. Um, that all goes towards it. But mental health, yes, I mean, you do need to address that i've i've looked at quite a few reports and there's quite a, from um on from different think tanks and um medical associations it seems to be quite you know for every report where i say it's a terrible problem and it shouldn't be legalized there's another report saying well actually it's not as big a problem or we can treat it in this way so there should be much more focus on mental health and the harms but in a way legalizing it might um focus more attention on this rather than you know, sort of the wire kind of fire, trying to chasing the drug lords. And in fact, I think even the writer of the wire said that you should stop focusing on uh, trying to police it all the time and actually focus on how you reduce the harms within the parameters of how people use them today. And, and lastly, I mean, several people, and we did talk about this right at the start, but several people highlighted the, the, the a pragmatic, a practical problem, which is, you know, the, the people who vote for the, the Tories would clutch their pearls at the very idea that we're going to legalise cannabis. Uh, uh, and and Labour are, are the main opposition are too scared to, to rock the boat and, and come out and, and say any of this. So can you see it happening here in, in the, the next 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? It's hard to say. I've seen predictions that it would be it start to happen here in the next few years, next two or three years. Um, but you're right. I mean, neither of the main parties being in support is quite a big barrier. Um, I suppose you have to wait and see what Crispin, how Crispin Blunt gets on with his party. <laughs> but um, it is, you know, it depends on the groundswell or where, you know, if the election changes the balance. But it is, it is a barrier. Um, but the entrepreneurs are quite optimistic. I don't know whether they're over optimistic. Um, but something does, it always seems to be moving in a sort of towards legalisation, even if it stops several steps 
before that in a lot of countries. So is watch it possible for it to happen here? Yes, watch the space. Great. Thank you so much, Suna Erdem. Suna's article on drug legalisation in Europe is in issue 291 of the New European, which is available in newsagents and supermarkets now. Uh, and a quick reminder that if you want to enjoy more of what we do, then you can subscribe at the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. The neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Before we go to the Hall of Shame, a quick reminder about another podcast, uh, Series 1 and Series 2 of Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives, available now. Uh, they tell the life stories of remarkable Europeans in 10-minute bites. You can find Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives uh, wherever you got this podcast. Just search for Great European Lives podcast. Uh, and finally, we come to the Hall of Shame, where we put blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers, putrid pundits, things that get my goat generally, and Nadim Zahawi, who was mentioned earlier on as a possible Dalek, is in the Hall of Shame uh, for his tweet on the death of Dennis Waterman, the health secretary wrote, R.I.P. Pete, a great actor, I grew up watching Minder. Uh, R.I.P. Pete... Uh, I grow watching Minder, just not the credits, I think, uh, Nadim. Uh, Nadim Zahawi also described the local elections like this. A tough night for us, but I don't think it was any better for Labour. Um, a reminder there that the Conservatives lost nearly 100, 500 seats in the local elections. Labour gained over 100, uh, successfully defending those they won in the last cycle, of course. Uh, Labour gained five councils, the Tories lost 11, uh, Labour polled five points ahead of the Conservatives nationally. That was a swing to Labour of six percentage points. Uh, no, I don't think it went any better uh, for Labour than it did for the Conservatives. Nadine, well done. Uh, Jeremy Kite is in the Hall of Shame. He's the Tory leader of Dartford Council, who happily posed for pictures at the opening of a new food bank uh, in his district, where he cut a ceremonial ribbon. Uh, like he was uh, equating a place for hungry families to queue for food uh, with um, this, you know, being the same as a new scout hut that was being funded by the local women's institute. Uh, adding insult to injury, Jeremy Kite was then photographed tucking into a cherry bakewell um, at the food bank. It was part of a spread of cakes and sandwiches laid on for Tory dignitaries to celebrate the opening of a place where hungry families have to queue for food. Uh, Mr Kite was smiling in the picture. Um, he told the local paper he was smiling because the opening of a food bank is a happy event. Uh, for the benefit of Mr Kite, it isn't. Talking of food banks, Tory MP Lee Anderson is, of course, in the Hall of Shame. He said in the Commons this week, there's not this massive use for food banks in this country. We've got generation after generation who cannot cook properly. They can't cook a meal from scratch. They cannot budget. Um, so it's your fault, basically, for not being able to cook a meal, not uh, for uh, not having enough money. It's not the government's fault for not giving you enough money. Um, Lee Anderson added during just during his, his speech, he added that Labour MPs opposite him were looking at me like I'm from another planet. Uh, I think they were looking at you like you were from another age. And Whittacombe, of course, is back in the Hall of Shame. In a dreadful column in the worst Daily Express, she writes this. The mess in Northern Ireland is not due to Brexit, 
but due to the deal negotiated, which the Brexit party consistently warned was a betrayal of Ulster. The mess in Northern Ireland is not due to Brexit. Well, first, without Brexit, there would be no mess in Northern Ireland, wouldn't there? There wasn't anything to sort out uh, before Brexit happened. Uh, it's due to the deal negotiated. Well, second, the deal was done by a Prime Minister who the Brexit party let into power by standing down in every Tory-held seat. Had they not done so, had they listened to people who said Boris Johnson wouldn't be trusted, uh, they might still have had some influence, so might the DUP, but instead the Brexit party uh, is a, an irrelevant, and, uh, and now the DUP is also uh, an irrelevance. Um, as a great man once said, oh dear, uh, how sad, never mind. But foremost in the Hall of Shame this week is Boris Johnson himself. Uh, the Sunday Times has revealed that Boris Johnson uh, personally despises Keir Starmer despises it was an actual quote uh, a Tory insider told the Sunday Times he genuinely doesn't like Keir he sees him as part of a privileged metropolitan narrow-minded elite uncomfortable with the instincts of the vast majority of British people and presumably Boris Johnson went on to say that Keir Starmer shows off by using fancy words that means nothing uh, has got rubbish hair and he's got a stupid first name too that was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to Sooner Erdem for joining me. Thank you to our producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. A reminder of our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. That's the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. If you don't want to miss an issue of this podcast, or even an episode of this podcast, it's not a print thing, is it? If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European Podcast, please subscribe, give us nice ratings, lovely reviews, uh, help remind me that it is uh, a podcast and not a print thing. But if you want to buy the print thing, it's available in shops. You can join our Facebook readers group. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at The New European. You can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. And until the next time that we meet, so long, snowflakes. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're 
so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you Acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. On Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com So, Retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Monday, it's the anniversary of kids' classic, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. On Tuesday, how Rockford became the cheese of kings. On Wednesday, we meet the Jobs and Wozniak of the 1800s. On Thursday, the history of the YMCA, from the city of London to the village people. And on Friday, the edgy musical that made Greece the word. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes each weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.